0: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo.
1: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings for a piece of content that they're choosing, And we then discuss its application. Another three excellent guests join me this week as we continue season three so please if you could introduce yourselves and tell us your current role.
2: Hi everyone, Uh, I'm Elliot Newell. Uh, I'm a sports psychologist in training, uh, coach developer and uh, I currently work at the English Institute of Sport in the Performance Pathways team where my role is around um, system building, and uh, talent development practices.
0: Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Hugh Gilmore. I am a sports psych with British weightlifting and British athletics at the moment, Um, and also co-host on a podcast called
3: 80%
0: Mental. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Pete Olushaga. I am a senior lecturer in psychology, uh, currently at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, I am <clears throat> I'm the host of 80% Mental, which Hugh has just mentioned. Um, and I'm also a chartered um, psychologist with the BPS.
1: Fantastic. Jen, it's a real pleasure to have you all on. Just a quick reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content we discuss and the recommendations to other high-quality content. So we will get straight into things. Elliot, we're coming to you. What is it that you're going to talk to us about?
2: Uh, well, I am bringing to you guys something I'm sure you're really excited about, uh, curriculum. Uh, so curriculum is something that's fascinated me for a while. Uh, because I understood it in my previous role, teaching, college, uni stuff, but uh, never really applied it to sport. So uh, what I wanted to share was an article uh, by Dylan William, uh, which I think is a brilliant short publication. It's called Principled Curriculum Design. And I've been using this in my work. uh, And our whole pathway team at EIS has been using this uh, in our work for the last couple of years. The two kind of main questions I think it helps us explore. The main one is you see a lot of coaches being encouraged to come up with philosophy, like what's your coaching philosophy, what's your philosophy of practice type stuff. But there's always a question around, well, how do you translate that coaching philosophy into practice? And then from the other end, a lot of coach development focuses on the, the pedagogy. Like how do, you, how do you structure sessions? How, you de- how do you design practice? And I think curriculum is a really useful way of uh, giving structure, purpose, and meaning to that. So what I really love about this um, article from Dylan William is that it outlines some principles for curriculum design that I think are like, hugely appropriate uh, and relevant for coaches. So there are seven principles. Um, I'll, I'll fire through each one now, but I won't go into a lot of detail because I imagine we can have a chat and, and your listeners can read a bit more about it. But. It's a way of trying to work out, well, this young player in front of me, what's the experience I want to create for them? And the principles that can help you do that is uh, making sure that the experience is balanced, that it's rigorous, that it's coherent, that it's um, vertically integrated, as Dylan Willing calls it, which basically means, does it progress from where they've been before and where they're going to go next? There's a bit around, is it appropriate? Is it not too much of a challenge? Are you stretching appropriately or um, are you putting too much pressure or, or too much demand? Is it focused? So obviously we can't teach everyone everything they'll need to know for their whole life, but how do we, how do we prioritize and make decisions about what we coach? And then this idea of relevancy as well. Um, how relevant is it for the uh, learner's needs right now? So that's just a real simple thinking tool. I like in the article that Dylan Williams says that um, not all, model, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think this isn't a, a trying to be right, it's trying to be like a thinking tool to encourage coaches to think about, well, what is it that I'm creating here um, for this person when I'm coaching them? I can't just run practices because they're fun, because that doesn't really get us anywhere. I, I have to think with the end in mind, how is what we're doing today gonna help develop the skills that we want this young person to have moving forward? Uh, in their sporting career and and their life so yeah a little bit of a a sell for me but um, yeah I wanted to share that with you guys and and share that with your listeners because it's a fascinating um, uh, way of looking at coaching practice over the long term fantastic thank you very much
1: I, I think my mind jumped straight to do you think curriculum have a bad name from, from an educational perspective? I I think education gets critiqued an awful lot around quite a strict curriculum and almost seen as a box ticking exercise. So I wonder what your perceptions or experience of that would be within a kind of a a sports um, environment or a coaching environment, actually the the
2: benefit of, or the challenge of overcoming that. Yeah. Yeah. We call it the C word. I don't, (laughs) don't say the C word. And, um, and to be honest, like, we introduced these ideas to uh, sports probably um, back in the 2015, 2016. We started having conversations about curriculum. And honestly, man, people like, some people hated it. <laughs> they seriously hate it because it's got connotations. It reminds people of school when they're like, well, one, I didn't like school. So I don't want to do that. And second of all, like, we don't want our sports to feel like, school you know like so many of these kids are spending their day at school we don't want them to come into sport but the the two the two ideas are too crossed over like at school you experienced a curriculum a type of curriculum you didn't experience the curriculum so what we've been trying to do and, and where we've been really successful in sports i think they've made huge strides forward where they've just got over it they've understood that school experience was one type of curriculum I've got it in my power to create a completely different type of learning experience for, for players when they come into our sport environment. So the way that we've tried to define curriculum is that it's the totality of experiences an uh, athlete has on their learning journey. So if you take it for what it is, if you take that definition, then it doesn't mean classrooms, it doesn't mean assessments, It you know it's something completely different, you design it. But what you're trying to do is Breathe life into your philosophy, and you're trying to give a point to your practice. Um, so, yeah, like I said, the sports that kind of got over it quickly and, and embraced it, I think they've made some really, really uh, important and significant strides forward.
1: How how would you go about actually determining what goes into it? Is that that seems to be another argument, and maybe a criticism of trying to create one? Is everyone will have a I guess maybe wanting a little bit, a piece of that pie or wanting their kind of area or, or something specific. So how, what was your kind of process? And, and I'll open that up, Pete, I'm, I'm sure you've got experience with that in terms of education as well. So what, what does that look like when you go about creating
2: one of these? I think one of our biggest challenges is we're a, we're a team of 10 trying to support 50 odd sports. So I think our initial approach was to try and do things on scale So something that you can package up and go and deliver on scale to a large number of sports, which ended up looking like a series of workshops that guide people through generating this this type of stuff. Where we've been able to get to in the last two years or so has been to um, focus less on defining curriculum and more around discovering it, because it's happening already. Um, and this has been the part of the job I've personally enjoyed the most over the last two years is just getting out on the field, in the gym, on the pitch, sitting on the shoulder of coaches and helping them to make sense out of what they're seeing. Um, them helping you to understand their, I guess, mental models, their views of the world, why they do things the way that they do. And you kind of build curriculum that way. And then you can, as I said before, you can use these principles, have conversations around um, either planning conversations or even like reviewing conversations about, um, you know, what was that experience or what is the experience we intend to create? And uh, it, just, it just makes really good conversation. I think the sports that we guided through this, when they went through the kind of package of workshops, there was a lot of were like, okay, we've done it now, tick. We've, we've done curriculum. Um, but it's this ongoing cycle of you know you you have an idea you put it out there you deliver it and then you test the learning and then you see where the learner's at now and then you just do the whole thing all over again so it's always ongoing Um, and I think the two ways that we've tried to do it been helpful Um, but recent experiences with the doing some more uh, I guess traditional coach developer stuff where you're just getting out next to coaches um, has proved really really useful
1: Pete, what's, uh, what were your experience of that from an education perspective?
3: Yeah, there's a, a couple of things that Elliot said there that struck a chord. And the first one was um, starting with the end in mind and working backwards, um, thinking about not only what it is that we want people to know, but what we want people to be able to do, what attributes and characteristics we're trying to develop in, in my case, our students, Uh, and working backwards and thinking about the experiences that we can give them not just the learning that we can give them but the experiences we can give them that might help them get to that outcome or those outcomes um and the other thing that Elliot mentioned there was the idea that it's a, a continuing process it's a creative process it's a continuing process it's not a case of you know we sit down we design a curriculum and then we execute it it's a case of it's you know very much ongoing in the moment. Okay, well, you're in the classroom. This isn't working. Let's try something different. How else can I get this across? How else can I um, get again to these intended outcomes that that that, that I started off with? Um, I'm curious, Elliot. You mentioned seven principles at the uh, at the start there, and so we might might get the chance to go into them a little bit further. Um, could you expand on that? Is is this a good time to do that? Can we expand on some of those those principles?
2: Yeah, sure. I think I, I realised that I like. I listed the first four and then probably like <laughs> gave line two on the next. So I'm glad you kind of gave us an opportunity to revisit that. Um, so all of these play a part. So like, let's take the first one around balanced. So the word I hear all the time now is holistic. Uh, and I think we're kind of getting in at that. Like, are we offering players and athletes a balanced experience that develops them as a whole athlete and a whole person? So you might say like an imbalanced curriculum experience in sport might be one where you just, you just beast it in the gym. uh, And that's your strategy for getting fast. If you're, if you're a runner, let's say Um, it might be more broader where like it's imbalanced because all we ever do is talk about performance. We don't talk about well-being. We don't talk about you as a person. So the balance principle is around making sure you're aware of all the factors that are important and that you're, Given that uh, yeah that balanced opportunity to uh, for people to engage with opportunities to either develop or, or learn about them but also what's kind of like prioritized culturally across the group and across the sport like does everyone have a similar idea around what other things are important so that was that balanced one um, I don't know if we want to have like a chat about that or if you want me to move on to the next one
3: well, you know, you mentioned kind of uh, the, um, the holistic approach, mm-hmm. uh, and I think you know that again that really stands out for me because in in education, for example, I mentioned that it's not just about um, getting across a certain amount of knowledge; it's about okay, well, who do I want that? Who do I want my students to be? And I guess it's the same in coaching, isn't it? You know, for me, it's not a case of well, and and in psych work to be honest it's not okay so okay well what do you want to achieve uh what are we trying to get to it's like who do you want to be and what can i do as a lecturer as a sports psychologist as a coach in order to help you get there it's not just about skill development it's not just about performance um it's about character development and it's about attitude development so i think that balance um for me is is, is a really important one
2: yeah, absolutely. And it, it sparks some really good conversations, you know, with coaches and uh, particularly when you get into like year plans or um, when you get into these kind of ideas of periodization. Or even if you're just planning like a two or three day camp. So like overall, how much emphasis do you want to put on technical development or, you know, physical training or whatever it might be? It's just a, it's a really good conversation start. Um, the, the next one's about about rigour, and I imagine Hugh will have a view on this, um, that the idea that the content that you're delivering and the way that you choose to deliver it is rigorous, that it's true to the discipline, um, that it's evidence-based, um, that it has a degree of um, credibility. Um, so, yeah, I'll be particularly curious around what Hugh, uh, Hugh thinks about that because I know Hugh's... Or, always got a really interesting perspective on critical thinking and, uh, evidence-based practice.
0: Well, I suppose my view on critical thinking and evidence-based practice is that we should do it. And, uh, if we're not doing it, we're doing something wrong. Um, but <laughs> I think, you know, in terms of rigor within curriculums for coach education pathways, um, I know there's not a lot of rigor, um, in fact, myself and Pete recently had a discussion um, on our, our podcast about learning styles and that's incorporated not just within the curriculum within coach education, but also within uh, scholastic education in schools. So, you know, rigor is a difficult thing and I think it's a question I was asked when I removed learning styles from a coach education pathway that won't be named was well, you can't just take it out. You have to put something else in. Uh, I find that a very interesting viewpoint because obviously there needs to be a product. So I suppose i like to throw back to you, like my question is, if you have a curriculum, how much of the curriculum is, is, is actually rigorous and meaningful and, and evidence-based versus how much of it is filler? And we've got eight boxes. Let's make sure we have something in each box. Um, mm. Any thoughts on that?
2: yeah i think that's a really good point um one of the things with um the i guess the process of trying to generate or reflect on a curriculum is that um if you set out your objectives first then you decide what type of content is appropriate for meeting those objectives then you decide okay well if that's the content how might we try and deliver this pedagogically like what what's the, the, the teaching and learning methods that we want to employ so Um, It depends if yours is a content question or a a delivery question. If it's a content question, then um, what I found in sports is that there tends to be a relatively high level of rigour from coaches when it comes to um, the technical and tactical side of the game. And it's not always rigour that's born out of research. It's quite often... know rigorous based on years of practice years of experience years of seeing and being around and um being the best in the world at something so um might test some ideas in that way but i guess the broad thing is uh, are we testing the idea that we're putting into practice so for example um would it be rigorous to um let's say we've got a group uh, an under 14s academy they're coming in for a camp and we want to run an hour and a half workshop on growth mindset. Like the question we would then say is, all right, well, we could talk about balance, we could talk about everything else, but one of the questions might be, how rigorous is that? How true to the overall goal of developing high performing people is that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I definitely, you know, when you you started speaking, I thought, yep, Elliot's talking sense as usual. Um, regarding the curriculum. I shouldn't really have said as, as usual there, but Elliot's talking sense. Um, so the thing is that I kind of thought was, right, we've got a curriculum and we, we wanted to have rigor. The, whenever you set a curriculum, you create a framework and, and how do you allow for innovation and creativity within that? Because I think once you start setting out a framework, um, you you can end up being confined by it And constrained by it. And there isn't the opportunity for innovation and development. There's just a pass these people through this curriculum. So I'm I'm curious to hear, does this incorporate into the next and and again that's a question on rigor because is a curriculum innovative if if it's already described? Um but I, I I don't know. I mean it's just my challenge, but I think the other thing that I will say is that I'm kind of going, yeah, I wish all the times when I was a coach, I had a curriculum. I wish I had a curriculum to actually guide the process. And give it some thought like a strategy so i've got two two viewpoints there Elliot. And that i don't know what what are your viewpoints in the whole how do we incorporate an innovation uh, into a curriculum or our newness um while still maintaining focus then
2: yeah so um we are I, I mean i don't know how they do it in other places but our team we've always positioned curriculum as an inquiry cycle so you you Use the ideas in the curriculum to uh, generate a hypothesis that you just then go out and test. Like, does it work? Is it relevant? It's constantly moving, it's constantly changing. You're right, though, to pick up this word framework because sometimes they're correlated, aren't they? The ideas of curriculum are correlated to ideas of framework, but I don't think that's true. Um, I really like the analogy of a campfire. So less of a framework, can the ideas of curriculum be a campfire that coaches get around to discuss development and um, let's, let's build stories, let's build ideas, let's build um, uh, a common language that we then go and uh, understand our practice and plan our practice around rather than a framework that says under sevens must do this, under eights must do that, under nines must do this. But I completely take the point because it happens i've seen them i've seen these booklets that have come out like, that are really rigorous in that way and you do shun um creativity because you almost say don't worry about finding answers because we've already got them they're all in our curriculum what you need to do is just connect the students or the learners to the answers um which i don't think is correct particularly in sport Pete, did you want to jump in
3: yeah sure I was, I was just going to say i think you know you're right that the word curriculum and the word framework, it kind of conjures up images of this, uh, well framework, um, that you have to stick to, I guess, but you know, it's curriculum design and development. It, it, it has to be a creative process, you know, so I don't think you can separate those things. And I think it's really important that when we talk about curriculum and framework, it's actually the delivery of, of, you know, what's in it that absolutely has to be creative. Um, you know, it has to be, well, tailored to the people who you're delivering it to, first of all. But we have to come up with new and innovative ways of doing things. Um, But you're absolutely right, I think, that 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 notion of having a curriculum, and maybe it's just the word curriculum, gives us this idea, okay, well, this is something that we have to stick to. We have to tick all of these boxes along the way. We have to cover this and that and the other. Um, And perhaps, I guess, perhaps the... Just the, the, the idea of curriculum, the idea of framework maybe does stifle that creativity. But we have to get, you know, we have to get over that uh, and we have to be creative in the ways that we come up with to, to deliver a, a, a learning experience. It's going to be beneficial.
1: There it was, it was actually quite a nice analogy used in a uh, Telegraph article talking about structure within, within rugby. But um, Tony Brown, who's the Japan coach, talked about it being nails in a wall. And actually, they're, they're just nails that you hang your pictures on. So the nails can go anywhere. And, and I wonder whether that's something that then starts to lead into this. The, the the wall is all the available information. Well, we're just at some point, we're going to have to put a nail somewhere, but it's always flexible. You can always take it out. You can always move it. What you do with it, I think, is then is then up to your skill and your experience and the environment you're in, aren't you? But I wonder whether, as you say, we, we just need to get beyond that stage of thinking it's a box ticking exercise that yeah inherently
2: it can be way more than that, you would hope. And I dare use the word fun there, Phil. I've, I've worked with coaches where they've said, this is actually quite fun because what you're doing is challenging them. When you get it right, you're challenging them to be creative because you're getting them to think about things that influence the development of their players, rather than, as some of them say, you kind of get into a bit of a rut, you know what your session plan is, you get there, you deliver it. It may be something you've delivered a 100 times already. You know, the idea of curriculum design and you're pushing these principles um, really gets them to think about, all right, well, how do I make this come alive? But also, how do I make this come alive player by player? It, you know, Because what might be appropriate for one player will be different for another. What's coherent for one player might be different. And it's this really messy puzzle that if you understood curriculum, you really, would understand that you can't put it in a framework anyway um so yeah all for curriculum i I quite like
1: that and appropriate was the one i kind of honed in on when you said you know you, you talked about the player and it being an appropriate stretch and an appropriate challenge but you you think that would apply to the coach in exactly the same sense wouldn't you actually that there's going to be bits that you're going to be more comfortable with but even working as the coach in your own environment how willing are you to stretch yourself to go away from your traditional pedagogy or even your traditional you know practices themselves and and actually do something new or are you one of those coaches that never really settles I guess they're at the other end of the spectrum where they're kind of like that's new and shiny that's new and shiny I'm just going to keep kind of chasing that silver bullet but I never really actually get to decide on what my philosophy is or my style is or my preferences and I wonder how you kind of deal with with that from within a curriculum perspective.
2: Yeah, I think this is where, um, how do you marry practice design and philosophy? Like for me, curriculum's the bit in the middle that brings it all together. Like I've heard stories from coaches where they've gone on CPD and they've been, you know, one guy said he was forced to come up with a philosophy and you had to articulate your philosophy. Um, and it did nothing for him, but it was part of passing the course. Equally, I've come across coaches, like, you know, one coach interaction stands out, where he described himself to me as, oh, I'm a constraints-based coach. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Um, can you explain that to me, please? And he was like, Oh, well, you know, ecological dynamics and all that. But he, he was so wedded to a practice that it actually didn't matter what his uh intended development journey was going to be and all the flexibility that you could get around that working out what works for who when why and how he was just like right this is my practice so curriculum is really good for like how do you try and encourage coaches to see the bigger picture (laughs) in in a lot of these things Um... from a psych
1: perspective how, how would you guys approach dealing with coaches that maybe don't know themselves and and i wouldn't say lost because i don't think anyone ever truly knows themselves enough to say this is exactly what i am but i i wonder if if they're kind of in that as you say they're just drifting a little bit rather than these people that are really fixed just uh, still trying to discover themselves would you guys have techniques or or things that you would challenge them on or questions you would ask to to kind of get them to discover themselves and dig a little bit deeper How, how do you go about approaching that
3: Who's who's gonna go? Shall I go?
1: Go for it. Go for it. Yeah.
3: Um f- for me, it, it comes back down to um exploring values, what cultures really truly value, and not just as coaches, but as as people, as humans. Um and a real kind of in-depth exploration exploration of what's really truly important to them. Um and, you know, I guess some people might call that a coaching philosophy. Um, I, I guess that's, that's part of it. But for me, yeah, it's just kind of exploring, okay, well, I, you know, as a person first, what's really important to you? What do you value? And why do you value that? Um, and then thinking about, okay, well, is what you're doing currently as a coach, your coaching style or whatever you want to call it, is that in line with those values? Is it moving you towards what you think is important to you or is it taking you away from what you think is important to you? And if there's a clash between what you're doing and what you really value, you know, that perhaps to me is an indication of that, I guess, feeling of being uh, lost, as you described it. Um, I don't know. I don't know what anybody else thinks about that. I think for, from my perspective, you know, Coaching is a journey.
0: And I can remember starting off at 16 uh, as a coach. And I was coaching the under eights, 10s, and 12s in the GAA in hurling. And I had an incident where one of the bigger players was getting bullied on the pitch by the opposition and doing some pretty nasty stuff. So I told this under 10 to go out and stamp on his toes. Now, that's, you know, people are probably shaking their heads at this. I'm shaking my head. Like you, you always shake your head at me, so there's no change there. Um, but the thing is, I was a 16-year-old coach, and it was my first year of coaching, and I had a, a player that I cared for was getting bullied, uh, and I didn't know how to deal with that, and that's how I dealt with it. I think the process of getting from there to a much better coach many years later actually comes through reflection and learning from the context of your mistakes. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of psych mumbo-jumbo out there about reflection, but it needs to be done in a really simple way for coaches that they can actually take in. And the, the way that I've found most helpful is like, give me three things that went well. And then, and then after you've answered that, that's to give them confidence um, in that they're not actually a, a horribly bad person or coach. You then ask what is the negatives in that scenario that you've just done? What are the positives in that scenario? What are the changes you would make? And then, What are the positives of that change and what are the negatives of that change? And it's very important to ask what are the negatives of that change? Because people often forget that stage and then ask, what are you going to do next? So for me, like coaching is a journey. And I think part of that journey is, as you say, getting lost, Phil. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Pete, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, I was just thinking then when you were talking about, you know, you as a young coach and I, I kind of go back to myself, I've got a background in basketball coaching and, you know, similar experiences, I remember starting off coaching and I think I used to coach in the way that I thought I should, based on the way that I was coached, based on what I watched in other people and what I kind of thought was expected of me. Um, and, you know, Hugh made a really good point about reflection there. I don't think that as a really young coach, I ever had the, the skills um, to reflect properly on on what I was doing and 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 again why I was doing it, um, I think as a as a coach now I haven't coached for a little while, um, but you know more recently as a as a coach, I guess I did have the skills and the ability and the the self awareness really to reflect on okay well what am I doing and you know again I come back to values again is it in line with the way that I want to be um, as a as a person. Um, or is it not but as a young coach certainly I, I just didn't have the ability to do that I didn't have the insight to be able to look at what I was doing and reflect so I think that the point that Hughes made there about reflection is a, is a really excellent one
1: I, that ties into some of my thoughts and this is something I think about quite regularly and someone put this really nicely in terms of it's, it's a journey of becoming but you never become and I just wonder whether that's that's something certainly that resonates with me and it's, it's taken me years to recognise that that there is going to be no end point. It's all, you're always in that kind of process of of constantly cycling back through and using reflection. And I wonder whether just some of the narratives we have in sport and around coaching and, you know, the, the term made it. I hear made it so often. I just go, like, whose perception of made it are we talking about? Like, what measure of success is that as a, as a coach, as a player, and I don't know whether that's a, a generational thing, but everybody seems to be in a rush to be what's next. What's the next job? What's the what's the next opportunity? What's the next chance to to be successful or to make it or whatever? And I and I, I don't know. I, I have concerns that there's there's a rush to something that doesn't exist. And, and maybe we just need to kind of reframe that whole discussion because the levels of anxiety and stress and, and just some of the damage that maybe can create and, and I, again from a psych perspective or coaching perspective I'd, I'd be really interested in what, what whether you guys would agree with that or disagree with it yeah Hugh jump in
0: you know I think uh, this idea that there's better things out there and that I need to do better and be better the next course the next job the next team ultimately what what that message is is that I am defined by the team that I coach You know, and Elliot coaches a horrible team, angles he under eights, I believe. Um, And, you know, it doesn't define him in, in his knowledge or competence. Like he's absolutely spot on in his understanding of performance, you know, throughout the board, but coaching an under eights team, it's his performance that defines him. So I think, you know, professionalism can be found anywhere. High performance can be found anywhere. It's not about letting ourselves be defined by our circumstances. And from a, from a, I can nearly speak from a psych perspective, say that 10 times fast, I think don't let your circumstances define what you are as a coach. Let what you do as a coach define that and how you cope with the difficult circumstances that you might be in. Um, I don't know, Elliot, have I been too harsh on you there?
2: Uh, Not on me, but you've definitely been harsh on my under eights. They're not horrible, they're lovely. (laughs) Jock, <laughs> uh, you know, Phil, I, I'm really glad you bring this up because um, one of the things that has been a, a worry for me for quite a while is the general well-being and, and mental health of coaches across our high performance system. And, and I'm not involved in rugby, but I chat to people from the world of rugby and it seems like it's, it's echoed there. Um, this idea of being lost is, is a really interesting one because um, it speaks to this like I haven't yet discovered something um, and my question is always well what have you missed already like what are you missing right now because you're so preoccupied about what next and I really like your language around it's becoming I often use the word discovery um, you're lucky enough to have a job where it is about discovery it's about play curiosity exploring the boundaries discovering what could be what's new what's different what's the same like could have a nine to five where you just type stuff into a laptop all day like choose that life if you want um i just think we we underestimate the that whole life experience that can come with something like coaching so um i'm working with a couple of performance coaches at the moment linked to this idea that you've just talked about being lost and really resonated with what uh, Hugh had said about journey about values as peter brought up as well and one of the things that we've been exploring is purpose and um, where purpose comes from and what clues in that person's life story so far has brought them to the place where they are now where they're coaching but also why they feel lost and it's quite an interesting task perhaps if i explain it people at home could do it but you map out highs and lows in life and then you just explore the highs like what was it what needs were being met in those high moments um and equally on the low moments like what needs were being thwarted or or what conditions were that and that those are the clues like there was a coach who thought actually I didn't think I was egotistical at all but basically everything good in my life was when my ego was getting stroked and every time I felt crap it's because people weren't giving me enough credibility or attention or whatever it might be so um it's a really good discovery task in that and and asking yourself questions like big questions I don't think coaches have enough time to ask themselves which is why do you coach what do you get out of it and also importantly what would you lose if you didn't do it anymore um, if you can work out what coaching gives you then my inkling would be from a psych point of view you've got so many ingredients you'll need to work out why you why you may be feeling lost
1: I love that, and I, I think that leads on to some of that even deeper philosophical stuff. And I, uh, you know, a uh, friend in common in Sam Jarman, I, and I almost feel like you know this this is that interlude where he would just jump in with these even bigger questions around who are you and what's your purpose and this type of stuff, which is is a completely you know whole rabbit hole in itself, which is which is awesome and kind of keeps me up far longer at night than I'd probably like to be honest. But I think, but I genuinely think it's really good. I describe that to people like it's really good for my soul just to go down that that hole and just try and understand some of that because I'm I'm perfectly capable of recognizing I'm never going to have that answer. If I do, I think I could probably make a lot of money, which would be great. But that's just kind of not the point It's never going to be answered. There are some unanswerable questions. But just recognizing that and around identity and, and who or what you are and then how you align it and do all those other stuff. I, I just think that they're really powerful, as you say, discoveries to kind of you know, to to explore almost just to just to get lost in and, and enjoy that that feeling of knowing yourself a little bit better because you got a little bit more lost each time is, is kind of how I look at it. So. That's awesome. I'm really conscious of time. I, we could generally probably do a couple of hours on this, but um, we we will shift it on. So, um, Hugh, we're coming across to you. What is it that you're going to uh, talk us through?
0: So, seeing as uh, Elliot's uh, eaten up all the time with his curriculum, uh, I'm going to be rather brief with mine. Um, I, I, uh, I'm I very fond of communication. I think communication makes a big difference in people's lives. and the better you can do it, um, the better results you get, basically. And I think within sports psych, you know, understanding how to communicate better is is a big, big thing. Um, essentially, it's it's how we do our job. But the paper I'd like to discuss is a, is a research paper, and you don't need to be a scientist to read it. Um, you can just read the introduction and you'll get everything you need. Um, and it's called when change orientated feedback enhances motivation well-being and performance a look at autonomy supportive feedback in sport by Carpentier and Magoo I've probably pronounced that wrong but apologies but it's you know it's nearly 10 years old this paper is 2013 and one of the things it talks about is you know people often talk about negative and positive feedback you know Negative being, don't do that, that's terrible. Positive being, well done, that's good, you've done that. But actually, those terms don't really give us the detail that we need because whenever I say something like, don't do that, or I I tell you off, or I, I highlight that you've underperformed, that can actually be taken in a positive way and a negative way, depending on how I actually deliver the message. So I can say, that's a terrible, that's a terrible pass you've just made. Um, you should be ashamed. And that's you know, don't pass like that again. Or I can say, uh, you've just made a pass and it was unsuccessful. Um, if you did it like this, it would be much better. And again, both of those things are the same message of you've done something that needs changed, but it's how it's delivered. Um, and and that for me is what this paper talks about. And it's got eight points in it, which relate to uh, how you can give feedback that is actually better. And the, the main finding from this paper is not that the quantity of feedback that coaches give matters, but the quality. And I think that's where you know we're all seeking. How can we give better quality feedback? So if one of our coaches who's listening wants to give better feedback, here's eight points for you. And that's all I'm going to say is easy eight points and then you can take it and leave it and we can move on because it's really self-explanatory. Um, the first one is provide a rationale f- to explain um, why it is you're, you're making that feedback. The next one is be empathetic. Consider the athlete's feelings and thoughts and perspectives. Next is assess whether or not the athletes know and understand uh, their feedback uh, and I know, know the rationale why why that is because that'll allow you to understand the rationale pair the feedback with tips on how to improve future performances make sure the feedback's delivered promptly and privately so you don't want to highlight that somebody's failing in a public sense and deliver it in a considerate tone of voice so the the big thing for me there is that there's a whole structure around actually giving the feedback in a way that is going to be well received. Um, and the the tips, whenever it's talked about giving tips, it actually it refers to you know giving the athlete choices within a bandwidth. You know, here's a list of things you could try or do, you decide. And that means that they're in control of the process. They're not being told to play in a certain way. They've been told here's the bandwidth to play within. Um, or here's a bandwidth of success, You know, can you figure it out for yourself? Sort of retains that autonomy within the coach. Well, I think if I was to go on and talk about that further, empathy within coaching and empathy within uh, behavioral change within psychology um, is shown as one of the biggest predictors of change is how, how accurate and how, how empathetic can you be um, with somebody and that will actually build a better relationship and everything we do as a, as a psych is, is moderated through relationship. Um, up to 60% of the effect that we create comes from relationship. And I think the, the thing that I often tell coaches is like, don't work on your athlete, work on your relationship with your athlete. And this feedback is actually a good a good framework as to how to work on that relation with relationship with your athlete. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. But the entire, you know, the first half of the paper before you get to all the heavy stuff, like the stats, uh, is wonderful. And they also did find out that coaches who give change, uh, autonomy-supported, change oriented feedback, uh, their athletes enhance better than those who were scored low on the autonomy-supportive uh, change-orientated feedback. It's a bit of a mouthful to say. So, yeah, not only does it work, it's beneficial to your athletes it even it was even shown to be beneficial to your athletes well-being so um yeah definitely check that out and, and just as a coach you know examine those how you do that within your language i bet i think the best thing i've ever done as a coach is is video myself and see how i communicate um and just sort of think about is that aligned with those, those eight characteristics um so that's that phil
1: Fantastic. No, really, thank you very much. I, really interesting in terms of, and I'm always a big fan of a paper where somebody says you don't need to be a scientist to read this because there's definitely some that you do that I just lose me completely. So that's that's awesome as a start. Um, Empathy is definitely on my kind of development plan, I guess, personal development plan. And, and it, it weirdly sits in the middle of my kind of work ons and strength because I can never actually decide how, how good or empathetic I am. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, got, I've got loads of empathy. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tuned into this. And then other times I'm like, eh, on reflection, no, I don't think that was. So, top tips for developing empathy: Is there any kind of go-to strategies other than just better relationships? Is is there more depth to it than that? What would you be saying?
0: Did you ever um, watch Catchphrases uh, with Roy Walker and Mister Chips? Say what you see. Yeah. <laughs> So basically, uh, I'm I'm terrible. Like I'm taking all the psychology knowledge and turning it into a Northern Irish game show host. Right? It's, basically, it's
3: good, but it's not right. Oh
0: my god! Where did that come from?
1: <laughs> oh, that is a fantastic impression.
0: <laughs> so so, Phil, like basically say what you see, you know, and, and let's, let's, let's do this for the audience. Okay. So, you know, I'm the coach, you're my coach developer. I've come to you. I've just told you that I've told a 10 year old to go and stamp on another 10 year old's feet. And I'm, I don't know how to deal with that and process that because I've basically set him up for some form of premeditated assault um, as a child. And I'm also annoyed that uh, the, my, my, athletes getting bullied you know I, i've just told you this what are you gonna say what are you seeing me
1: in in terms of what's my assessment of that or yeah so i
0: i, I i've just shared this with you so i've shared i'm gonna, I'm gonna share it to you now. phil i told them i told them to go and stand on his feet and you know he's getting bullied in the pitch i'm so annoyed but i'm also worried because like that's probably not right people are going to look down i mean that people are going to think i'm a bad coach Say what you see.
1: Uh, so I'd probably come back with something around how are you going to kind of now mitigate the decision you've made? The,
0: what, okay. So what? you've just made, you've, you've just given me a question. Actually say what you see. So put, put an emotion on it.
1: Uh, anger or frustration,
0: I would guess. Yeah. So just go, you're angry. You're frustrated. That's it. One simple word. And I'm like, yeah, I'm angry. Yeah, I'm frustrated. And I think that's the big thing is like you use, use the person you're communicating with as a resource. So if you name the emotion they're feeling and they turn back to you and they say, yeah, you have just hit empathy on the head. You know, you've got it. You've cleared the board uh, in the catchphrase thing. You know, you've, you've said, said what you see. So you, we'll try it again. Um, Phil, I've just been down the shop and... Uh, the security guard has uh, given me a bollocking because I didn't scan the thing through uh, and I got in a bit of a row with him and ended up... The alarm went off and was going out and we had a bit of a argument. I'm really annoyed because it was an accident. Say what you see.
1: Uh, frustration?
0: Yeah. Anything else?
1: Frustration... Um, It probably is. My mind's gone blank, to be completely honest, under pressure. Um, What else will I be seeing there? Um, Embarrassment, potentially.
0: Yeah. So frustration, embarrassment, bang. And, And then I go, yeah, I'm frustrated. Yeah, I'm a little bit embarrassed. And you know what? See if you go, you're frustrated and embarrassed. And I go, no, no, I feel really happy. It was a hilarious situation. Then you just got more information out of me. And that more information allows you to have a better conversation and then allows you to try and empathize again on the next round of say what you see.
1: That's great. I really like that. As you say, my concern would have been initially, what if I say the wrong thing? But as you said, if that just leads to them actually going, no, it's this, then I can't really lose in that circumstance.
0: Yeah, so give give me an example of a proudest achievement of you that you're happy to share uh, when you were coaching.
1: Uh, A player that I've worked with getting selected for a national team.
0: Okay. Uh, You felt confident? Yeah. Okay. You felt silly?
1: No, I wouldn't say I felt silly.
0: OK, so in that point, normally in a conversation, you'd like, no, I don't feel silly. And you give me more information, Yeah, okay. you know, because it would just flow into the next bit. Yeah. So don't be afraid of getting it wrong. Be afraid of actually jumping in with questions. Actually, just say what you see and put it out there. Um, so, yeah, that will be how you would boost your empathy skills. Watch a bit more catchphrase. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: I love that. No, that's really positive. Thank you very much. Yeah. Learning on the job. There we go. Uh, where do I send the invoice? That's always the key bit. <laughs> um, around how, so how would I, I'm just coming back to some of, some of these communication skills. And I think you said uh, considerate and I guess it kind of ties in with empathy slightly, but I guess that stereotypical picture of coaches, we would see a lot. Is that kind of frustrated on the touchline, whether that's in a game or in training, there's, there's probably, yeah, a lot of frustration, maybe even anger, how, again, how would you kind of go about mitigating that as a coach? I'm thinking if that's a trigger and I, I definitely know I would be frustrated as a coach and I probably snapped at players and got a little bit tetchy. I don't think I'd ever be angry as a coach, but I've definitely kind of gone, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Um, are there any kind of triggers or anything you guys would would suggest in terms of how people that might struggle with that could overcome that? Because to my mind, that's going to be a big blocker to be able to deliver those kind of you know eight points effectively if if they're only ever coming through the emotion how do we take that out of it open question anyone can go
0: well phil um i'm glad you asked that question because the the thing about you know being angry i would look at anger from the point that you have witnessed something that you do not agree with you know, and that might be a bad pass. That might be uh, a play not coming off. It might be that you've been scored against, Um, you know, it could be even a a bad referee's call. And the reality is anger is, uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, A reaction to you not accepting reality. The reality is you can't control the ref. You can't control your players. You can't control the opposition. You can only control yourself. And you're basically putting on to them that they should behave the way you are, kind of like you know, some sort of fascist dictator, behave this way because that's the way you should behave. So whenever you're angry, you can get lost in that and can get very hot and very boiled up, and and you know, you go into flight, flight, or freeze mode. And what you need to do is bring it back from that. So I think first of all, is you want to recognize when you're angry um, and know what your signs are. So preparing to be Preparing for a situation where you might be angry will allow you to prevent that anger. So prevention is always better than cure. That would be the first thing that I would say. So like, what do you do in a situation when you are angry and how would you prevent that? And then what do you need to tell yourself? You need to tell yourself the referee will always be against us. The opposition will always be dirty and be better than us and bigger than us. And my players will always make the silliest of mistakes at the most crucial of times. My job as a coach is to do what's right in those circumstances. So that's actually something that your coach could get behind and believe and understand that might sort of change the cognitions or thoughts about uh, challenging that anger. But I mean, there's other techniques in there as well. But I think, you know, Pete's a pretty angry person because he has to deal with me a lot. So, uh, yeah, Pete, what are your thoughts?
3: Um, Yeah, I do have to deal with you a lot of you. Um, Thousands wouldn't. It just it reminds me um, of uh, a study that I used to talk about when I taught some of this stuff on coach athlete relationships. And you know what you're talking about there really is self awareness. Again, coming back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier on, and the the reality of it is that a lot of coaches aren't actually aware of their own behaviours, of their own reactions to what they're doing. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a study. Um, it's a it, it's quite an old one. It's sort of like ten years old now. Uh, Miller and colleagues, and they observed behaviours of coaches. I think this was in uh, rowing. I think, but they observed the behaviours of coaches uh, in terms of uh, the what, the why, and the when uh, of, of these coaches giving instructions. Um, and then they asked coaches to estimate uh, again the sort of Uh, frequency with which they gave certain types of, of instruction. Um, Basically what came out was that coaches vastly overestimated the number of instructions that they gave, which were kind of um, what you might call positive instructions. Oh, you did that really well. Um, Here's how you might perhaps uh, correct that. Uh, In reality, most of the coaches instructions were identifying mistakes so there's this discrepancy between what coaches were actually saying and what coaches thought they were saying. Uh, in terms of the when of giving instructions, most coaches um, vastly overestimated the number of times they gave what are called terminally timed instructions. So you give an instruction as somebody's finished executing a skill because um, it's probably more likely to be received and understood uh, you know when somebody's finished performing a skill, right? Most coaches vastly overestimated the number of times they did that. In reality, they were given most instructions right in the middle of a task, which is not massively helpful because you're in the middle of a task. So again, there's this sort of discrepancy between what coaches think they're doing and what they're actually doing in reality. Uh, and again, in terms of like why they're giving instructions, coaches reported that they were... Um, uh being evaluative or they were tr- saying that they were giving instructions to be evaluative to give evaluation but again in reality when people observed what these coaches were doing and saying they were giving just instruction just prescriptive do this this is you know what you need to do i'm the coach you need to listen to what i'm saying so there's that massive discrepancy between what coaches again you know are doing um and what they think they're doing so that self-awareness piece comes back in into the into it again um and again, you know, as, as Hugh was mentioning, that awareness, not only of the types of instructions that you're giving, but awareness of how you're responding to things, you know, how you perhaps perceive that you're responding to a stressful situation, or, um, you know, you might perceive, you might think that you are responding with a particular emotion. Actually, your athletes are seeing something completely different, and everybody else is seeing completely different. So, you know, that awareness and developing that self-awareness, I think, is uh hugely important um in, in terms of kind of developing as a as, as a coach
1: i guess that would lead on to the, the obvious question which i i would think most coaches are aware of but actually how you develop self-awareness in terms of is it just about seeking additional feedback is it is it using you know the gopro or the camera or whatever and actually getting someone to you either film yourself or somebody to film you or just asking your athletes or parents and would would you have any other kind of go-tos to to seek that kind of information
3: i mean the you know the two applied psychs in the room have probably got more of a of an insight here but you know there's all sorts of different ways that, that that we can do that i think And again, Elliot and Hugh will talk to this probably, but having that open and honest conversation about what the role of the psychologist is um, right at the start of the relationship with the coach is, um, yeah, potentially something... Hugh's just pulling funny faces. Uh, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what that's supposed to be about. Um, But essentially, yeah, you know, having... um, He's such a child. Having... um, you know, those open and honest conversations about, you know, with the sports psychologist. Okay. Well, are you open to getting feedback on your, you know, own behaviors and the way that you're reacting to certain situations um, and then kind of building on, 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 that sort of relationship. Hugh, what do you think?
0: I think I'd love to hear from Elliot.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good, but it's not right. <laughs>
2: uh when, I, when I've done that type of work, it's been with, with miking up coaches and, and cameras and, and observations and, uh, you know, sometimes um, we don't have to necessarily overcomplicate things. One of the things that is useful that you didn't mention, but, uh, or might not mentioned as clearly, was um, athlete feedback. Like, I've always been really surprised how little athlete feedback comes back to coaches. Um, considering how open coaches are giving athletes' feedback on their performance, it doesn't seem to be a a two-way thing. Um, It's always been curious for me. Um, But it kind of comes back to, like, a broader idea of, like, how many coaches see themselves as performers. And, um, you know, I I talked about this on on a a pod I did with Rusty when we talked about how in Canoe Slalom we used to have, like, performance plans for coaches on competitions day like what are your objectives what's your process what's your plan what are your uh, strategies when things go right things go wrong like how many coaches drill athletes and teams into this is what we're here to do um but don't necessarily pay their own performance the same attention because they're there to do a job but in my experience most of them just rock up and I was about to say blag it, maybe that's not fair, but they just play it as they see it, um, which I don't know. Like I think if you have a performance plan, you know what you're going to do. You've got some strategies in place for yourself to make sure that you are performing to the highest potential you have for the benefit of your athletes and teams. That just sounds like a really good coach to me. I'm thinking if you're
1: saying a coach is blagging it, you've probably seen it. Before, so, <laughs> right, right. I was thinking about my under eight experiences,
2: but thanks for joining me on that one,
1: yeah. Coach performance plan. I love that. I, I think that's absolutely, yeah, That that's not something I've ever thought of really. I guess you understand your role on a match day or whenever it is competition, but actually having that as a performance plan, I think is, is awesome. Uh,
0: yeah. huge. you in. know, what? I think, uh, you know, the making up coaches and performance plans are great. I also coach reviews after competition. Um, it's like the top and tail. We plan what to do and then we review it at the end and see how did that competition go and what what mistakes were made and how can you learn from it? Um, but I think the other thing is having big, dirty, massive open questions that just, you know, like little grenades, you just throw them into players and say, right, you fixed that. So, you know, what are your biggest problems and hand them to people to fix so how would we make trainings run on time you solve it and and let other people solve it and come up with ideas because not only are you then deferring control you're teaching them the skills of of actually creating better performance and doing it in a collaborative way but the ideas that you might get back um, are going to be more creative than you would create in your own. And it's a good way of, like, you know, getting that feedback in from the team. So I think, you know, every coach should have a list of open questions in, in terms of feedback that just can't be answered in a simple word. They have to be thought about, you know, like, how would we know we're going to be better in uh, 10 weeks' time? Uh, and what, what, what's your role in doing that? And what's my role in doing that? There, that's a five minute answer. Um, and I think giving those things to players, Dependent, like, might not work with eights, but it is something that you can use uh, to just provoke that discussion and thought. And as long as I think, if you're doing things in that openness and and you know, it's a co-creation performance that's created together, you're actually going to get somewhere decent. Um, I've yet to see anybody succeed by just dictating and doing it one way.
1: I, I also wonder if there's that piece around the the kind of the contracting. That you you do with your athletes at the start you're gonna you're gonna explain this got to be a two-way process as as, as Elliot said I always find that fascinating actually just how unwilling at times athletes are to to give that and I would I presume it's the power dynamic some of them even when you say why are you not willing to give feedback aren't willing to give feedback on why they don't give feedback so it's kind of that I guess there's something about the relationship there But are they always looking at you as the person that makes those selection decisions or makes the the tough calls or the contracts or all this type of stuff so that they're just not willing to influence that and our way around that quite recently was we actually just asked them about the relationships so you know what rate your relationship with me what can I do to have a better relationship with you so it wasn't being overly critical of I don't like it when you do this on the park or when you run this session, but we just thought actually if we can build better relationships first and, and get some dialogue going both ways in that sense, then maybe that leads to a better conversation about more kind of pedagogic feedback or kind of action-based feedback in a, in another way later on down the line. So yeah. Interesting.
2: Hugh, go for you know, um,
0: The Japanese have a great idea um, and the, it's about speaking last, the person with the most authority and most power speaks last. And I think that's, if you look at your team, you've got, you know, 20 people in a team who's the new person who's the most established person and the the most most established person you can tell a bad team because they're the only person talking whereas the the youngest and the most inexperienced person needs to speak first because that'll allow it's less likely that their ideas uh they won't they won't disagree with a senior person you know Uh, if a senior person says look the sky is blue today and they come in and say, actually, no, the sky's gray. They're not gonna say that if somebody's already said the sky's blue. Um, Why the weather's important is is beyond me. But the point is that that you let the people with least power and least experience speak first, and that will help facilitate that open and honest feedback
1: is this why we had a mexican standoff about 10 minutes ago when there's some really good i'm gonna have to edit it out but there's a really long pause where you're all looking at each other going i'm not going to answer this question first Is that kind of the the theory leave it in
3: Leave in the awkward pause it's dramatic (laughs) (laughs)
1: love it uh awesome right on that note um pete we're going to come to you uh what is it that you're going to be discussing
3: so as the uh, academic in the room, um, I've gone for something completely not academic at all. Um, I, I've picked um, a documentary series on Netflix called Losers, and there's, there's eight episodes of this series, only sort of half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that, um, but each episode tells a story of a person or a team that has failed to live up to expectations uh, in their sport or somehow managed to, um, I don't know, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, people are kind of really quite close, but haven't quite made it. Um, it really, it's supposed to be a look at the psychology of losing and how people cope with, uh, like I say, never quite managing to get across that finish line. Um, but that's, that's not what I took from this documentary series. For me, it was more exploring what success really is like what success really means how do we define it how do we look at it um, not only as individuals as athletes and coaches but kind of on a much broader level as well like a societal level like what does success actually mean um, and you know, through watching that documentary series it kind of brought up some of those questions and maybe what that means for athletes and teams and coaches uh, trying to trying to operate so there's a couple of different stories, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll not talk about all of them, but there's a couple that stood out. So there's, there's the story of uh, a guy called Michael Bent, um, and he was basically forced into boxing by uh, his abusive father. Um, he had some success, but never really made it. Um, there's an episode telling the story of uh, a figure skater, Sariah um, who I remember watching as, a, you know, when I was young um, and she was incredibly talented. Um but really struggled because she was a black skater in what was and I suppose still is really um, uh, essentially a pretty white sport the figure uh, figure skating I won't spoil the stories for people who want to watch it but you know both of those athletes and some of the other athletes in the series as well basically completely redefined what success actually meant uh, to them so there's a lot of different examples um, and you know, it's just, I guess, kind of reflecting on watching those as a sports psychologist, it sort of made me wonder maybe, you know, what the coach's role might be in helping athletes, you know, maintain perspective, right? It's just a sport or is it just a sport? Is it more than that? You know, what's your identity? You know, Elliot talked earlier about kind of this holistic approach and, and understanding the whole person. Maybe that's something that's, that's important for coaches, Right in terms of defining success what's the coach's role in preparing athletes for life after sport all right in terms of that sort of tangible support um dealing with the prospect of maybe having to do something else because they haven't quite made the grade they haven't quite achieved that level of success as we define it you know what sort of emotional does the coach have a role in providing that emotional support um you know, what's really in place? Can we be proactive about that as, as coaches, as, you know, as sports likes even, um, and how do we keep going? You know, Hugh and I did a recorded a podcast recently about, um, you know, the, the event versus the grind that's coming up in series two. Um, and how do you keep going? How, you know, how do you maintain that motivation and that commitment when you're either, either you're just kind of missing out on the top sort of repeatedly and again there's a, there's a really good episode about ali zirkle she's a sled dog musher um who competes in in the Itiderad, which you can't say not in an american accent it's like a thousand mile race uh, across alaska uh, a sled dog race it takes about like eight to 15 days to do it it's a solo race it's honestly it's incredible um it's, it's worth watching just to kind of experience what that's like um, but you know she was kind of right near the top. She almost won it uh, like several times, but never quite made the grade. So how do you keep going when you're not quite at the top? You never quite make it. But also, how do you keep going when you're just at the bottom? You know, you're, you're kind of just avoiding relegation. So there's one episode about Torquay United who are notorious for just about escaping uh, relegation, like perennially. So, you know... I, it's it's entertaining it's you know at times like a really emotional uh, documentary series as well but it just it raises a lot of questions about how we define success and what success means um, and it's, it's it's honestly it's well worth uh, worth a watch um so that's that's me completely unacademic but very very accessible um, and yeah a really interesting thing to, to to take a look at
1: sounds fantastic I, I love those kind of questions and uh, we might have chatted about this before on a on a podcast i kind of lose track now but actually whether success and winning are the same thing and and how we separate those is is it semantics you know who who's creating the narrative around these types of things and i would often talk with coaches or hear coaches talk about you know success and failure are kind of a, a spectrum whereas actually they have to go hand in glove like you don't get one without the other but that doesn't necessarily mean you can't separate out winning from success and failure so yeah there's some brilliant questions Hugh keen to jump in
0: yeah you know um I think something I heard uh from a really I don't know how good he is but he tweeted it and it was success is qualitative winning is quantitative um but you can ask him to explain it he's on the podcast go ahead Elliot
2: thanks Hugh it's nice to know people read my tweets (laughs) Uh, I did. I did tweet that the other day. Uh, yeah, winning is quantitative. Success is qualitative. And I think um, winning is winning is the end result, as far as I'm concerned. And I've held that view for a while, but it's just been reinforced with some conversations I've been fortunate enough to be part of in, in UK sport and EIS, and um, and also with like people like Kath Bishop, whose who's book's phenomenal on, on the long wind. Just being able to find ways to because I think fundamentally we're meaning makers, right? We're like, we, we have a mind that is built to be a storyteller, a sense maker, and a meaning maker. Like, we, we just have to live with that. That's just, as far as I can tell, was just in our heads. So if you can only have a really small percentage of winners, then we have to find ways to make sense of and find meaning in things like, in inverted commas, losing. Um, so thanks for recommending that, Pete. I've not heard of that before. I'll definitely check that out. I can't promise to read that paper Hugh was boring on about, but I'll definitely watch this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, there's, there's some absolutely fantastic stories in there. And uh, I guess some of your older listeners uh, might remember Jean van der Velde, who was a golfer. And I think he was something like, uh, something like six shots ahead in the 1999... Uh, open Championship, and I, again, this is one that I remember watching when I was younger, because uh, there's that iconic image of him uh, standing in the uh, in the water trap with his trousers rolled up over his knees, trying to dig out this ball that's, like, you know, three foot underwater. Uh, and he, again, he threw away the six uh, six shot lead. But again, you know, the, the, the fantastic thing, you know, we talk about success as, as being that that sort of outcome and, 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 and it's defined by society as winning. Um, and society looked at him as this loser, as somebody who threw away this championship. And again, if you watch the documentary, you'll see how um, actually what happened was, um, because, because it was such an iconic moment, because it was so, you know, uh, he became such an iconic figure that actually the take up of golf in France you know, went through the roof, and he's got this whole kind of golfing school, um, and has produced you know the next generation of golfers. So it's just that completely, you know, redefining what success means. And again, the questions that it raised for me, the questions that that that, um, that it raised for me watching this was, like, how much of that do we even think about, you know, when we are in sport when winning and and I get it, I get that it's difficult. I get that there's a bottom line in a lot of sports and I get that winning absolutely is important, but you know, how much of that do we actually take the time to think about what does success mean to you? And it comes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, who do you want to be as a person rather than what do you want to achieve? Like that's the fundamental question um, that that, that I would ask as as a sports psych, who is it that you want to be? What are you doing to work towards that? Winning will, Come sometimes, winning you know will uh, evade you. Other times, um, but yeah, it's a it's a fantastic series, and I absolutely recommend watching that.
1: I, I think the narratives we tell ourselves or create for ourselves, I, I always find fascinating. And I, there's one example: I uh, rugby team, I coach, we were in a cup game away at another team in Bristol, and I stood on the touchline. They were doing their kind of final huddle. And I heard the team I was coaching go, yeah, you know, we're, we're big underdogs today. Like we need to really step up. And about 40 yards away, I could hear the other huddle and they're going, yeah, fellas, we're big underdogs today. You know, we really need to play well. And I'm just kind of going, how, how does that work? Like who who's created a narrative that both teams are underdogs? Like that just us saying whatever we need to say to suit the mentality of the group we have. I, I, there's just so many perceptions I, I was just like I don't know how to even go about unpicking that because it, it, it's just completely illogical but it also makes complete sense and I, I find some of those things in sport we just, we just buy into because it's sport and we never really kick back
2: and challenge particularly hard
3: yeah the stories we tell ourselves right yeah
2: absolutely it's all a story right is that, like, is that the point I think it might be the point like, it's all a story um so to move away from that kind of doesn't doesn't mean a lot like um you know we get loads of examples of this and i really like some of the stuff chris Shambrook talks about around um, defining acceptable and unacceptable winning and unacceptable and acceptable failure like loosely termed but trying to break the dictonomy a little bit, trying like find the grey areas, find the differences. Like you can see how when um, Team GB jump in the velodrome, and you've got some swanky new kit, where some brilliant teams have been inv- innovative, creative, found some kind of cool helmets, and it's driving the Aussies crazy. So we love that; that's acceptable winning. Like, right? but then it's like, oh, there's a dodgy package with a with an asthma pump, and it's like oh, whoa, 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 whoa. like that's not the same. Like, so we have. Like there's a, a morality and there's, a, there's an ethical guideline that shapes the story. So we have to pay attention to that because you can't just accumulate medals and think that more medals equals more meaning. And I think the Rio Olympics were a great example of that. And the number of people who can tell me how many medals GB won at Rio, is phenomenal. It's like literally 10 out of 10 people I speak to know how many medals are won. The number of people that can name all of those medalists is, is virtually none. The, the people who, who watched all of those medal events um, is, is, is none. The people who know the stories behind those medalists and what to, is that, so it's like, well, what, do we be, do? We generate more success if we win more medals? Or do we potentially have a situation where we have less medals, but we're connected to the stories, we understand the people, we find greater meaning in them? Hugh?
0: You know, I think, uh finding meaning in, in elite sport is sometimes difficult uh, because you have situations where sports are funded because they can win a medal um, and not because they should be funded. And an example is, is uh, the this, the ones where you sit in a bacon tray and slide down a big icy slide. You know, well, well done though. We can, you know, win a medal uh, in a sport where there isn't even a facility in this country. You know that's that's very amazing and actually hands you know hands hands down to those practitioners who work in that sport because winning a, a medal in a sport where you don't even have the facility in your country that's amazing but also if you i think i heard it was 50 pound a slide you know and you think well the cost of actually facilitating that to win a medal in a sport that isn't culturally important for the uk that doesn't provide meaning that's just you know that's like driving a, a big ferrari and and you know in a sport that's underdeveloped really, uh, so I think how do we how do we actually justify that? I mean, and then you've got other sports that don't get funding, like uh, basketball, which again is very popular in the UK. Um, it's played in our city. It has a lot of meaning for people, um, and yet it doesn't have elite funding. So I think other countries do funding better, where they fund sports that are meaningful to that population, um, as opposed to winning medals. Um, and I think, you know, is, is there something about the culture of the UK that, you know, we have to win medals? Is there something about, uh, us that says that we're only good if we achieve and, you know, who's going to be brave enough to say that sliding down a slope in a bacon tray isn't actually that impressive, or who's going to say that spending a whole, whole lot of money to make a horse go sideways, isn't that impressive, you know, um, it, it doesn't impress me. Um, that's my point. I, I mean, I'm probably going to
2: lose some job or something over the head of this, but sure. Nah, it's, it's, it's. I it's, can't it. wait till the next conference. <laughs> you're at the bar with all of these practitioners <laughs> and skeleton in question.
3: I mean, it's, it's a really good point though here, because, you know, it's, it, it's like, yes, when somebody slides down a bacon tray really fast and wins a medal, like that's, that's really inspiring. Right. I remember watching it and being really excited about that, but it didn't inspire me to go out and try it. Right, It's not going to suddenly, we're not going to suddenly generate like a whole host of people who are going to go and take up sliding down, a, you know, a, a big slide on a baking tray, right? Um, so, you know, yes, it is impressive, but what is it, again, what does it actually mean? Like, what does it, that success mean? Um, whereas you talk about a sport like basketball, which people are, are already playing, um, yet yeah, is chronically underfunded, Um so yeah, I, I think it's a good point that you make. And, and again, it comes back to, well, what, what does success mean in those sports and making a horse go sideways? Right? Like, great. But like, is it about impacting the next generation? Uh, is it about encouraging people to take up sport? Um, and these are all, the, all of the arguments that you hear you know, about kind of funding going into these sports where we're likely to win medals. It's about encouraging people to, you know, inspiring people to become physically active and take up sport. Well, is it actually doing that? Or should we be putting funding into sports where maybe we aren't winning, you know, again, in inverted commas, uh, or, or we aren't successful, um, but actually people, you know, actually play that sport.
1: There's actually a, a very similar conversation to one I had in a... a- Master's lecture this morning and the, the comment I made was would we have been better off with all the money we invested in all those sports and in in the facility for London 2012 and everything else if we just dished out like 30 or 40 quid to every person in the country and said, Go and spend that on something that you're going to enjoy. Like would we have got the same positive feeling that and the after like <laughs> I I I don't know. I just again it's it's the stories, but it's maybe there's just way too much of a myth around that that feeling of success and nationalism and all those types of things that go with it. And it's, it's a very big justification for a lot of money spent on stuff that maybe we can spend in better ways. I'd agree. Hugh, jump in.
0: I had a really great point and it's just completely left my head. So I'm going to start talking and see what comes out. So I, I do think that, uh, you know, there are sports that are, do provide a lot of meaning, especially to those athletes. And I think Paralympic sport is, is one that I have, uh, have really, uh, you know, got a lot of time for it because it provides a real level playing field um, for people who with disability to experience um, sport and success. And I think that's an important thing. But, you know, I think the other thing about uh, sport and actually,
3: no, it's fucking gone. <laughs> Good job, you. I mean, do do you see? Do you see what I have to put up with now?
2: (laughs) I mean, this is terrible. But as a, uh, as if I might offer a defence of skeleton, and if I might offer a defence of uh, the broader high performance community and system, I think um, it depends on how you judge the success of that. So I know we talked about like what's relative success in sport, but what is a what does a successful system look like? And I know the thing that everybody's shooting towards is inspiring people through incredible sporting moments. Like the, the latest strategy from UK Sport is like, can we can we have a decade of incredible sporting moments that people remember, that people bring, bring together? It doesn't have to be that we're only as good as the number of people who take up skeleton to, to justify that. And I think there is a huge importance for sport as there are, I think for any performance endeavor because it continues to shine a light on what is possible and it continues to be a vehicle through which we push those boundaries of, of what humans are capable of like I, I get inspired by sport I was inspired by Lizzie and Laura and the guys who, who were so successful in skeleton as equally as I was when you know we landed a bloody probe on Mars uh, earlier on in the week like I think And people were questioning the cost of that. I just think there's something that is fundamentally human around asking questions around what if or what could. And I think if we didn't embrace some of these performance ventures like we do in sport, then we would lose that and we would get a whole lot of ordinary, which um yeah, I'm not quite sure what how I feel about that, but I just thought I'd put that out there.
1: No, no, I think it's a great defense, and and yeah, to kind of just, I I actually just think it's good that we question it sometimes. Uh, what, what whatever you arrive at as your final stance is is absolutely fine, and I would be in exactly the same boat. I, I I would scream at the TV every time they compete, but I just think it's it's sometimes good to kind of go, is this yeah, okay? Um, Hugh, finish finish us off with your. So uh, with this your is
0: and a point that i'd like to make in terms of success and what it actually is is we often have the idea that you know success is a four-year process in the olympic cycles and within sport maybe a 30-year career depending on how long a person's career is but i think actually if you take if you take a look at a club and coming from a GAA background you know the club has existed for over 100 years in my parish and you know across ireland there's thousands of GAA clubs um, and my question is, what is that club going to look like in that parish in a thousand years time? And what does ex- success look in a thousand years? Because in a thousand years time, you could achieve anything. It's just what's important now to achieve that. Uh, and if the club wants to align itself to be in a performance club or a social club or uh, a, a club that's about community or whatever it is, then that's what we should we should look at and actually look at success in a bigger picture. What does a thousand years look like? And to the same extent, what does a thousand years of success look like in skeleton or, or basketball? Um, so I mean, and again, skeleton's only funded because we're competitive. You know, basketball should be funded because we're you know it's important sport to the culture of the UK. Um, but again, I'm not. I, I definitely don't mean to be attacking uh, and uh, disdaining of, of those people who work in those sports like fair play to them because they do difficult jobs and as Elliot says it's performance that pushes the boundaries and exploration and we need competitive structures to create new ways of succeeding and some of these things I work with athletes who are doing pioneering techniques in osseo integrations um, which are going to be transferred onto NHS so these things are important in performance um, that they do transfer down and, and performance is an important part of life and uh, human evolution
1: super great place to uh, wrap this one up we'll do a very quick uh, round with your recommendations um so if you've got anything
2: you'd like to share Elliot we'll come to you first um far away well I might have two now because I had one but as Hugh was talking I threw up this book that's called the good ancestor I haven't read it yet it arrived earlier today but it's called how to think long term in a short-term world which seems Massively congruent with what Hugh was talking about. But to follow on from the curriculum idea, uh, Jamie, paper, uh, Jamie, paper? Jamie Taylor and Dave Collins published a paper uh, back end of last year, uh, which I think is a really good way of bringing uh, curriculum to life in this area. So the paper you can get free access online, it's called the highs and lows, exploring the nature of optimally impactful development experiences in the talent pathway. And I've been fortunate enough to work with Jamie for the last couple of years. And it's a really neat paper and just helping coaches work out, well, if I'm going to try and bring some of these ideas of coherence, relevance, challenge, support, all of this stuff, like what might that look like? Um, so, yeah, I think that'd be a cracking read for, for any coaches out there who haven't read it yet.
1: Fantastic. Link will go in the the uh, in the in blurb for that. So, uh, Pete, what are you saying?
3: Um... Okay, so look, if anyone from Netflix is listening to this, I feel like they should give me some freebies or something because I'm going to recommend something from Netflix again. Um, I I was having a conversation on Twitter recently about uh, research papers and accessibility. uh, And um, so I wanted to stay away from that. So I've gone for another Netflix documentary series. This one's called Last Chance You, And I don't know if anybody's seen that before, but it follows uh, student athletes in JUCO, junior college in America. Uh, these are all like talented, really, really talented kids, but they've got difficult uh, histories, difficult backgrounds, and they're getting a sort of second, third, often last chance, obviously, hence the title, uh, after getting in trouble or not maintaining their grades uh, in Sort of, you know, division one and division two schools. So, for whatever reason, they found themselves in these little backwater colleges that have become known for recruiting these really talented athletes um, who have found, uh, you know, difficulty elsewhere. I think f- for me, it's really interesting. There's five series of it. So, there's like six, you know, 50, 60 hours worth of, uh, of, of documentaries there. Um, and they're about to do a season on basketball as well. But it's really interesting for me to see coaches walking the line between. Well, often falling off the line, uh, but walking the line between trying to win and trying to develop, you know, these young athletes who are, they're often, you know, pretty broken people. Um, So again, it comes back to that idea of, well, what do we define by, you know, how how do we define success? Is it having a winning football program in your college? Is it getting these kids to, you know, become good for want of a better word, uh, human beings? Um, so there's some, you know, like I say, 50 odd hours of real coach dilemmas, um, that I think coaches can kind of watch and think, okay, well, what would I do in that situation? How would I react to, to this kid who's, who's in front of me with this, uh, background and this, you know, these problems and we're trying to win and all these kind of pressures. Um, so yeah, an, another documentary Netflix, you can, you can throw me some, some money.
1: Fantastic. I am, I am disappointed you weren't able to pull some sort of kind of coaching or leadership or success uh, message out of Star Wars, as we discussed in the WhatsApp. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that one for another time. We'll give you a few more weeks. Uh, Hugh, finish us off. What are you recommending? Uh, going with a challenge, I believe.
0: Yeah. So um, you actually discussed about anger and coaching and it ties into that a little bit um, and reflection. Basically, as a coach, if you're listening to this, write down a list of all the things that you blame people for. Um, So what do you blame your players for? What do you blame your your family for? What do you blame uh, the government for? What do you blame the club for? What do you blame the club officials for? What do you blame the referees for? And basically just write down all the things uh, on one page that you blame things for and then draw a line. Uh, And then beside that, on the other side at the top, write responsibility and then go and write down what's your responsibility in all of those circumstances. And if you can do that, that's gonna be an, a bit of an eye-opener, but it's also a really great task to do with athletes. When athletes come to you complaining about situations and, and scenarios, it's like, tell me all the stuff you have blamed for, and then now let's talk about your responsibility because that's where you have control and it's a nice little reframe and opportunity to reflect. And hopefully one day Pete will sit down and write down all the things he blames me for and then it'll take some responsibility for the state of our podcast, which you can go and see at uh, the 80% Mental podcast. It's actually quite good.
1: I'm a big fan of shameless plugs. So when when is season two out?
3: So, I mean, <laughs> we had some technical difficulties yesterday, but uh, assuming that we get past them, season two uh, can be expected on the 1st of March. Um, but if you want to check out all of season one's episodes you can go to 80percentmental.com uh, and you can find all the links to all the episodes and a bunch of other stuff there as well
1: awesome i'm a big fan so uh yeah definitely uh, definitely check that out if you haven't already and you're listening um elliot have you got anything to plug shamelessly unshamelessly uh, no
2: but i did want to mention you know i said i forgot that i booked this before i realized the watford game's on uh, they're winning 2-0 so i am proper happy um, so, I will just share my joy with everyone. I don't have anything to plug.
1: Just plugging what season tickets are <laughs> available now. Yeah, there we go. Awesome. Jens, This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I will round up the roundup. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a great discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like, and share once again thank you for listening wish you all the best and go well